This is a history, politics, and storytelling podcast, but this episode is about me. It's about me and why I even cared how thermonuclear weapons worked when I was nine years old. I even sort of understood how they worked, and that's not a boast. They aren't that complicated. Complicated to invent, absolutely, but not conceptually complicated. And especially not complicated when you have some disgruntled Russian physicists to help you out. I'm not talking about me here. I'm talking about Iran and North Korea and Libya and Iraq. This episode is about why I was just generally obsessed with nuclear war, such that it eventually became my career. Most importantly, this episode explains why you can trust me. If you don't care about me, skip it. I've always been turned off by podcast origin stories. It won't hurt my feelings. But I thought you should know. Or at least I thought that I should put it out there so that if you wanted to know, or if you wanted to know why you could trust me, you could. I'm releasing this episode with another that's more in keeping with history, politics, and storytelling, lest this deviation from your expectations alienate you such that you unsubscribe. Now, if you're still there, here is a story about the fall of the Berlin Wall, a disturbing film, Ted Turner, implausibly, and a child with post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in World War III. I was then, and I still am, stuck in the Cold War vault. I think I might be the very last of the Cold War kids. What I mean by that is that I am the youngest person I know with any memory of the Cold War, let alone any memory of anxiety or fear caused by it. It's like realizing that current college undergraduates never knew a world before September 11th and the security state. It's sort of spooky to be surrounded by people who never knew that world before, in quotes. I'm the youngest person I know who remembers what it was like in those last days of what had been a 40-year race for the end of the world. Most people my age didn't know that the Berlin Wall had fallen the day after it fell. It was a Friday in Ohio. It was also a Friday in Michigan, so I'm not sure why I said that. But my point is, it was a Friday in the United States. They were distracted. They surely didn't even know what the Berlin Wall was, and that's fair. We were children, and it had been around almost three times as long as we had been around. But I knew. 
I knew what it was and why it was. I knew all of that. And the great weight of my young life fell away that day. I'll never forget that morning. And every time I think of it now, it still makes me want to tear up. In front of a high school history class or a university Cold War course, my eyes will still burn every time I talk about the fall of the Berlin Wall. Because just then, we had it all. We, collective humanity, had a very rare chance. One of those once-in-an-epoch chances to do something right and better. See, I was obsessed as a child, possessed by an unrelenting fear of nuclear war. I was scared. Nuclear war, nuclear winter. I was unwell, mentally unwell, frankly, and no one my age even thought about those things. Most people my age didn't even think of girls yet. And by girls, I mean the clumsy, barely pubescent lust urge to procreate before the saber-toothed tigers do you in before middle age, and by middle age, I mean 15. By way of a quick explanation, do you know that element of George Orwell's 1984, when Winston Smith buys the paperweight from Mr. Charrington? Of course you do. It's glass with a piece of coral in it. Eventually, uh, spoiler alert, the paperweight is destroyed and the coral is sort of exposed to this horrible thing that the world had become. I used to be squeamish about touching some objects, not because of where they had been or what they'd seen, but because of what they might see. Like the coral, as in the horrible dark times after the inevitable nuclear holocaust. For a short time, and I have never told anyone this before, for a short time I didn't like to touch the staircase railings in my house because I imagined that one day they might be touched by a starving post-apocalyptic refugee looking for shelter. I was seven, so yes, I was obsessed in a sort of horrible, clinical way. So this is the memory I have of the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was a school day, it was a Friday, and it was November. So it was inhumanly early, uh, dark outside, and cold. My dad woke me up and said, you should come see this. I don't pretend to know exactly what he said. Knowing my dad, he just sort of curled his forefinger repeatedly in a shorthand that meant, there's an unnamed thing I want you to see and or participate in right now. Anyway, I woke and I went. We had a television in the kitchen that was sometimes on in the mornings. The news was on, and there were people standing on and dancing on and drinking heavily on the Berlin Wall. I was a child, admittedly, but I knew what the Berlin Wall was. More than that, and more than anyone else my age, I knew what it meant. 
this was the end. But in a good way, for once. The end of night sweats. The end of the overt strategic nuclear threat. The end of childhood stomach ulcers. It was the end of the Cold War. I was amazed. Stunned and amazed. And it was over. All at once. Like that. Now, it wasn't completely over, of course. There were still a few iconic moments left to play out, and not any trivial amount of legal and political wrangling. But for my purposes, and for the more general purposes of elementary school history and the survival of mankind, that was it. That was it. Anyway, that was one hell of a day. So what made me this way? Obsessed, possessed, generally concussed by fear at an early age? Well, for that, I need to back up to the bad old days. Or at least the second round of bad old days, according to the Doomsday Clock, a creation of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, that was and remains a fantastic accomplishment in graphic design and thermonuclear fear-mongering. That's a subject for another episode. I didn't have to do air raid drills. I never saw Bert the Turtle in school firsthand, 1952 to 1955, only you'd think they ran it on a loop for 20 years, the way it's lodged in the popular mythology. Let's talk about that another time. Anyway, there was no duck and cover or hiding under our desks as the bombs fell. Though, if you've seen a Midwestern elementary school tornado drill, that's an eerie callback. So what made me this way? A very young child traumatized by nuclear war. Especially seeing as we really hadn't fought a nuclear war. Well, it was Ted Turner. Sort of. Ted, take it away. We at Turner Broadcasting System are bringing you the following program to increase awareness about the consequences of nuclear confrontation and in an effort to promote world peace. This film, produced in Great Britain, is called Threads. It is powerful and alarming. However, it is not our intention to frighten, but to inform. Because the more we know about what could happen, the less chance it is that it will happen. In 1984, on the 23rd of September, BBC Two aired the film Threads. It is what you might call a gritty docudrama, 
You might also call it the most vivid and disturbing depiction of nuclear war ever put to celluloid. It's hardcore. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube, usually, and it's on DVD. And as of this year, Blu-ray. This wasn't always the case. There was a decade when it was unpublished, but definitely not forgotten by people of a certain generation. For the uninitiated, here are some highlights. Young couple, Ruth and Jimmy, live in Sheffield, England. Rising international tensions, coupled with unexpected pregnancy, the bombs fall, a woman pisses herself, the neighbors are burned alive in a massive conflagration, Jimmy is presumably burned alive, the world's on fire. Ruth survives and carries the baby to term by sheer force of will through nuclear winter, by tearing into an irradiated and very dead sheep, and by prostituting herself for rat meat. The final shot of the film is likely the most disturbing, and this is saying a lot for a scene in a film in which a character searching for water in the ruins wretches after realizing he's drinking from a trickle flowing over the scorched corpse of a neighbor. In short, prematurely aged Ruth with milky white eyes and gray hair becomes a grandmother. You can imagine the filmmakers, director Mick Jackson and writer Barry Hines, with their arms folded, nodding slowly, disappointed in humanity, saying, and this is why we can't have nice things. Enter Ted Turner. Ted Turner was an ardent anti-nuclear activist. He clearly saw value in Threads as a vehicle for that movement. He made a deal with the BBC to air Threads in the United States. More than that, he planned to dedicate the whole month of January 1985 to anti-nuclear programming on his Superstation TBS network. The LA Times quoted him on the issue. He said, In today's world, no one is immune from the threat of nuclear destruction. It affects us all. By airing programs like Threads, it's our intention to increase the public consciousness about the potential dangers of nuclear proliferation. And so he did air Threads on the 13th of January, 1985. A Sunday. A Sunday when I was perched in front of the television at my great-grandmother's house. My parents were somehow absent. They'd apparently missed the introduction, which went something like this. Cue the introduction. The following program graphically depicts the immediate and long-term effects of a nuclear war. It is recommended that viewing by children be at parental discretion and in the company of an adult. So I came into this film midway, but something important to note about the structure of Threads is that there are moments when the fiction, the drama, pauses and technical, factual intertitles and narration take over. In some ways, and definitely to a child, 
it looks like something that has actually happened, or is happening in real time. It's the docu part of docudrama. Threads is pretty terrifying, and you should see it for yourself. But on the day, nothing seemed strange. I didn't weep with terror or anything like that. The whole thing went straight into my subconscious. After that, occasionally a few images would pop up like I'd had a recurring dream. The dead sheep I mentioned, the city council buried in a bomb shelter, the woman wetting herself in terror as the mushroom cloud rose over Sheffield. I didn't know where these things had come from. Years after that, I was pretty consistently miserable. I became obsessed. Now remember, I had no conscious recollection of this film, but things leaked out into my life. I was obsessed with nuclear weapons, with all things English, and especially Sheffield, which is an industrial northern city that I can't imagine anyone is obsessed with. It's like a kid being too interested in Newark, New Jersey. It got worse all the time. And then November, 1989, Berlin Wall. It was over. A few years later, as a teenager, I was working in a video store. I had sort of pivoted in those adolescent years and loved nuclear war movies of the 1980s. And I saw a strange new one that I had never seen before. Video stores used to go out of business all the time in those days, and they would sell their collections in bulk to other video stores at auction. So we would get old, beaten-up stock all the time. So I was looking at the cover, reading the title, Threads, and I still had no memory. I took it home and started to watch it. It feels familiar, like around the edges. It has the faded appearance that most British television shot on film has. That's not strange. But there are scenes that I've had dreams about. But I've never seen this movie, so it's all backwards in my mind. Try to imagine. It feels like I had a dream, and it's been translated into a movie, but the movie came out before I had the dream. It was a very upside-down feeling. Then there were scenes taken right out of my mind, vivid and exact, and within the span of maybe five minutes during the prolonged and very troubling attack sequence, I realized that I had seen this before, and I remembered that day and everything about it, and I realized that this movie is the reason I spent my childhood afraid of nuclear war. Needless to say, I had a bit of a mental break. And the whole thing was a sort of textbook trauma, repression, post-traumatic stress situation. And it was all this movie. It changed everything about me. It changed 
the trajectory of my life. It had extraordinary power over me. Today, I have a PhD in history. And guess what I work on? The Cold War. I visit threads from time to time. It's just as disturbing, but it doesn't have the power over me that it did once. What bothers me more is that I am the youngest person I know who remembers a time when threads threatened to be more docu than drama. It was made to scare, or at least make aware, but nothing in it is sensational. All of the facts and figures were government assumptions, most of it taken from a 1982 book called War Plan UK by investigative journalist Duncan Campbell, which in turn is comprised of leaked or otherwise declassified documents directly from the government pertaining to nuclear war planning. When I have shown threads to students, almost all of whom were born after the fall of the wall, reactions fall into two categories. The first is disbelief that nuclear war would ever really be that bad, and besides, it would never really happen. This was a view espoused by some at the time and made up the majority of opposition to threads and also... 1983's The Day After, an ABC television film. The second reaction, almost always voiced by young men, is how appealing the scenario seems to them because they play Fallout and have trained for this. What I rarely to never hear is something like, we must at all costs prevent a nuclear war because it would unravel civilization beyond all repair, which was the argument made by anti-nuclear activists who supported the day after and threads. The whole concept of nuclear war on a global scale is distant now. What any modestly well-read citizen would have known from the early 60s onwards basic facts on fallout, basic knowledge of nuclear weapon effects, well, it's almost entirely absent from the public discourse and is therefore forgotten. In a nuclear-armed world, that is a very dangerous state of affairs. When the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union dissolved, the world got complacent, and then it got lazy, and then it forgot, or at least forgot a little more than it should have. But as you are listening to this, in Montana, and North Dakota, and Colorado, and Wyoming, and Nebraska, not so very deep underground, Air Force missileers are still sitting, waiting. They never went anywhere. 
And with all of this sensationalized, revived Cold War talk, that, at least, is worth remembering. And what was true 30 years ago is absolutely still true today. In South Dakota, just outside of Badlands National Park, not too far from Wall, site of the world-famous tourist stop Wall Drug, is a Minuteman Missile Launch Control Center. Its job was to command its flight of 10 missiles if an emergency war order ever came. Today, it is a national park. Launch Control Center Delta-1. Tourists pass through an eight-ton blast door painted with a Domino's pizza box. It says, Worldwide Delivery in 30 minutes or less, or your next one's free. This episode was written and produced by Dr. D.J. Kinney. That is me. This week's music by Bortex and Mute Stare. You can follow The Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault, and check out the website for links and show notes at coldwarvault.com. Until next time.